As we get started this morning, let me begin by uh, confessing something to you. There are really only two uh, days and times of the week that I'm somewhat confident of what day and time it is. Uh, the first is, of course, on Sunday, as you could imagine, with church. So I'm usually pretty aware of what day and time that is. The second is Wednesday at noon, when they test the tornado sirens. Um, and, and so I, I usually am aware that, okay, it's Wednesday at noon. And that, that test of the tornado sirens is, in some ways, uh, very much like today's sermon. It functions as a warning and a promise. It's a warning to us that suddenly, without any notice, we could be, because of weather, facing the imminent destruction that is caused by a tornado. It's also a promise to us in that if we hear the warning, if we take it seriously, and we act immediately, then we could be saved. And, and the same is true as we come to this passage this morning in 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. It, it functions also as a warning, a warning that we might at any moment be facing the wrath of a holy, almighty God. And once it's upon us, there's nothing we can do to escape. However, it's also a promise in that if we listen to the warning, if we take it seriously, if we act immediately, then we also can be saved. So this morning, as we begin looking at this, we're going to look at this passage uh, primarily uh, using chapter 2, verse 9 as the foundation, as the foundation for looking at the rest of the passage this morning. And 2 Peter 2.9 says this, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And I'm a bad news first kind of guy, so we're going to start with the warning. We're going to start with the warning. And the warning is this. God is holding the unrighteous for the day of judgment when they will be punished. God is holding the unrighteous for the day of judgment when they will be punished. And, and you notice, hopefully, in verse 9, it talks about the Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And that word keep is a word that we are familiar with from when we looked at 1 Peter. If you remember 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, it reads, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last day. And that word kept is the same Greek word. And, and the idea is that uh, it's being watched carefully. There's no way that it'll be lost. Just like our inheritance in heaven is, is kept where God is watching it carefully, preserving it as we have that to look forward to. 
The same sense applies in our warning that God is keeping or God is holding the unrighteous for the day of judgment when they will be punished. They're being watched carefully. There's no possibility for getting out of it. The punishment is certain. So as we consider this warning, there's four questions that I'd like us to look at. There's four questions I'd like us to consider. The first is this. Who are the unrighteous that are being held for judgment? Who are the unrighteous that are being held for judgment? If there are unrighteous and they are being held for the day of judgment when they'll be punished, the the first question that comes to my mind is who are they? And we see from verses 1 and 2, there are two things. There are false teachers and there are those who followed them. And you notice in verse 1, it says, there will be false teachers among you. Now, hopefully, that brings to remembrance when Pastor Andrew started into 2 Peter, he told us that the first letter Peter writes to the church, 1 Peter, was written to warn the church about dangers from outside. But he also told us that 2 Peter is written to the church to warn them of dangers that are within. And so we have this sense that there will be these false teachers among us, and those are the unrighteous being held for judgment, but also that there will be many who follow. The second question that comes to my mind then is, if there are these false teachers, how can we recognize them? How do we recognize them? And in turn, what do we need to be aware of or cautious about in our own lives? And there's a list of characteristics here from this passage that gives us some ideas of things that we can look at or be aware of. The first, from verse 1, is that these false teachers secretly bring in destructive heresies. They secretly bring in destructive heresies. And, And the idea in that is that as these people come in and they're a part of the church, quietly they begin to teach that there are ways that you can live contrary to God's word. And it's not so much that they're teaching wrong facts as that they're teaching people that they can live in a way that is disobedient to what Christ has called them to. These these destructive heresies. And, And that word heresy is also the same word that can be translated cults. So they're teaching another way to live. And as a result, we we often see that there begins to be some division or or some fraying of the unity of the church, right? Because there are those following Christ and then there are those who are listening to these false teachers and that there are other ways that they can go. The second thing we see also in verse 1 is that these false teachers are denying the master who bought them. They're denying the master who bought them. Now, that doesn't mean that they uh, have given into the modern phenomena that we have called deconstructing your faith, right? It's not that they get up and say, we don't believe in Jesus anymore. It's more insidious than that, actually. They continue to say they're following Jesus, but by the nature of how they live, they're denying Christ's position of authority in their life. They're denying him as master, they're living in a way that is, is not reflecting obedience to him and as a result denies that position in their lives. They, they want to find their identity in some place other than in Christ. The next thing we see in verse 2 
is where it talks about many will follow, many will follow. And, and the thing to see from that is these false teachers are seeking followers. They're, they're not merely content to, to live at odds with God's word. They're not merely content to live in disobedience themselves, but they're seeking to bring others along with them. They want others on their side. They want others to agree. They want others to practice the same things. So they're seeking followers. Next, from verse 2, we see their sensuality. Their sensuality. And one of the primary characteristics that we see for these false teachers is that they are pursuing sexual impurity. They're pursuing sexual pleasure outside of God's good and protective boundaries of marriage. They're, they're chasing after these things, hoping to find satisfaction or, or fulfillment in some plan other than God's plan. And they want others to do the same. In Jude verse 4, and, and I'll reference Jude several times this morning because Jude and 2 Peter are very close, uh, very close parallels in the things that they're teaching. But Jude says this, that these are people that pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. That they're taking advantage of God's grace and using it as a license for their sensuality. Jude 7 and 8 compares these false teachers with those living in Sodom and Gomorrah and their lifestyles as well. So we see that these false teachers are, are pursuing a way of sensuality. Verse 2 also shows us that because of these false teachers, the way of truth is going to be blasphemed. The way of truth is going to be blasphemed. And it just makes natural sense, doesn't it? They're living in a way that's contrary to God's word. They're, they're disobeying him. They're, they're not willing to accept or admit or live in a way that shows he's their master. So they're living in a way that as the world watches them, they begin to say, well, if that's, if that's what Christians are, I, I, there's, there's no real difference. There's no real hope. I don't want any of that. It reminds me of Romans chapter 2, verses 17 through 24, when Paul, talking about the Jews, says this, But if you call yourself a Jew, and you rely on the law, and boast in God, and know his will, and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Well, you then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And it's that image that we have here. These false teachers live in such a way that even though they might say the right things, as people watch their lives, they're unwilling to give glory to God, but instead they blaspheme the truth. In verse 3, we see these false, false teachers are motivated by greed. They're motivated by greed. Their underlying motivation and the things that they're doing is ultimately what can they get for themselves? What is it that they can do to profit from the church? And that leads right into the next thing we see, that they will exploit you. They exploit others. 
And that, that word exploit carries the, the sense or the connotation of buying and selling merchandise. And, and so basically the idea is that these false teachers come in and, and they buy and sell the others in the church. They're willing to take advantage of those in the church. They're, they're not concerned about the unity of the church. They're willing to sacrifice the holiness of the church. They're willing to surrender the obedience of the church or the spiritual lives of those in the church. All that matters to them is what they get out of it. So they're willing to exploit you, which again makes sense as you look at the next thing in verse 3, that they're willing to use false words. They're willing to say whatever they think you want them to say. They're willing to say whatever they can say in order to get what they want. They, they could lie. They can bend the truth. They can omit a few things. They can just make things sound good. Whatever needs to happen, because ultimately their end goal is to get what they want. It reminds me of 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. You're probably familiar with this, where it says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will in turn and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So these false teachers will use false words. Then if we jump down to verse 10, a few other things we see here in this passage. One, we see they indulge in the lust of defiling passions. And, and that references back to the whole idea of sensuality. But there's a little more here when it talks about these defiling passions. It's not merely that they're pursuing pleasure outside of God's good and protective plan. No, it's also that in doing that, they're bringing this cancerous growth, this pollution, this defilement into their lives and into the church. There's a defiling passion that's running and is growing and is multiplying. Verse 10 also says that these false teachers despise authority. They're, they're unwilling to submit to Christ as their Lord. They're unwilling to submit to the leaders that God has placed over them. They want to be the final word in their lives. They want to decide what's right. They want to decide what's good. They don't want to listen to God. They don't want to listen to his word. They despise. They hate that authority. Verse 10 also talks about the fact that they are bold and willful. And that underlying picture is this sense of they have this reckless abandon in pursuing their own selfish gain. And there's no fear of God in their minds. They're just going recklessly and boldly after it. And the sense of willful is just this obstinance. They're unwilling to listen. They're unwilling to do anything except please themselves no matter what the cost. It's interesting, verse 10 goes on and talks about how they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. And the truth is, it's not terribly clear what, what Peter's referring to. If we, if we look to Jude, verses 9 and 10, the example Jude gives is he says, But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the, the body of Moses... He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people, they blaspheme all they do not understand, and, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. 
And so the truth is, maybe Peter is making that same reference. Maybe he's referring to, to the false teachers speaking against spiritual or, or angelic influences that they shouldn't say. Or maybe they're talking about the, him speaking against Christ or maybe talking about them speaking against the leaders in the church. It's really unclear. But what's clear is the bottom line is these false teachers are so prideful that they're willing to speak against things they should not speak against. And they're not afraid to do it. In addition to this passage, again, if we were to look at a few verses from Jude, uh, a few more things. Uh, Jude 16 talks about their grumblers, their malcontents following their own sinful desires, their loudmouth boasters. They're showing favoritism in order to gain advantage. In verse 19, it talks about these are the ones who cause division, worldly people devoid of the spirit. And so this gives us a picture of what do these false teachers look like? What do we need to be cautious of? But not merely cautious of in those people, but what do we need to be cautious of in ourselves? What do we need to be aware of in our own hearts? The third question is how do we know their punishment is certain? How do we know their punishment is certain? If God is holding the unrighteous for the day of judgment when they will be punished, how do we know that's true? Well, the first thing, of course, is that Peter himself says it in chapter 2, verses 1 and 3, where he says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And, and there's a little bit of irony there in Peter's writing when he talks about that they're secretly bringing in destructive heresies, but ultimately what they're doing is they're heaping destruction upon themselves. But in verse 3, he says, their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So Peter tells us that their punishment is certain, but he doesn't just end there. He gives us three examples from history as well as a proof that these unrighteous are being kept for punishment. The first is he talks about angels. He talks about angels in verse 4. When he says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the day of judgment. And he's most likely referring back to what happens in Genesis chapter 6, 1 through 4, where it talks about the sons of God coming to the daughters of men. And, and he references that, if you remember, from 1 Peter 3 verses 18 through 22. And when we were working through that, Pastor Andrew shared a number of things about that. And if you want more details, ask Pastor Andrew. Okay. Um, but Jude 6 gives us a little, a little additional commentary. It says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. So we have these angels that stepped outside the bounds, the plans that God had, and in turn already are being held for the day of judgment when they'll be punished. The second example from history that we see here is he talks about the flood in verse 5, talking about God did not spare the ancient world when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. 
So he references the flood, all of the people that were living ungodly lives, they were punished. The third thing is he talks about Sodom and Gomorrah in chapter 2, verse 6, where it says, If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. And so Peter shows us here again that historically we can look back, the people that were living in Sodom and Gomorrah, they were punished. And so the punishment is certain, but that brings us to the, the final question, and that's this, what's the nature of their punishment? What's the nature of their punishment? You know, think about it. The wicked angels, uh, the people uh, living at the time of Noah, the people living in Sodom and Gomorrah, all of those people thought they would escape God's judgment. They thought they would escape God's punishment, his wrath. Now, we, we don't know a lot of the details with the angels, but we do know more about the life of Noah, right? Noah worked and, and was working on building an ark for 120 years as a righteous man, proclaiming through his life and his words that the judgment was coming, and yet none of the people, none of the people believed it. They thought, oh, you know, there's a punishment. There's no God. Nothing bad's going to happen. It doesn't really matter. We can do whatever we want. But then, once the door to the ark was closed and the rain started to fall and they realized that the wrath of God was on them, it was too late. Similarly, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, they were living these ungodly lives day after day. They didn't have any sense that God would punish them. They thought they were getting away with it. Everything was good. They could do whatever they want until the fire fell. And, and then suddenly it was too late. Both 2 Peter and Jude tell us that Sodom and Gomorrah is given as an example of the punishment that is certain. It, it, it's, it's definite, it's guaranteed for all of those who are continuing in unrepentant rebellion against God, those that seek to lead others to do the same. God is actively holding them, actively keeping them for the day of judgment when they will be punished. Now, please Please hear this warning this morning. It's easy to sit here and listen to this list of characteristics and, and think about, oh, other people are that way, and this is what I see, and maybe they're a false teacher. But, but let me just beg you to stop and consider your own hearts. If your life is characterized by some or, or even any of these traits that we're talking about, you might think that you're safe from God's wrath. That, that somehow you can escape his punishment. Maybe you think that by being in church or, or, or by saying a prayer or by being baptized or by being from a Christian family or you know, somehow just being a relatively good person, that, that those things are going to let you escape from the wrath that's to come. But I'm telling you, just like all of these people, the people living at the time of Noah, the people living in Sodom and Gomorrah, just like they thought they somehow would escape, your destruction is certain. But once you realize that it's upon you, it's too late. Now that, that should be troubling to you. That, that should be terrifying to you. That should keep you awake at night, 
Hopefully it will help you keep awake for the rest of the sermon. Let's talk about the promise. God knows how to rescue the godly from trials. God knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Again, from verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. And let's consider the same four questions. Okay, if, God, if, if God's going to rescue the godly, who are the godly that will be rescued? Who are the godly who will be rescued? And we have several verses we can look back to in 2 Peter, just in chapter 1. In verse 1, it talks about people who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In verse 4, it talks about those who have become partakers of the divine nature. In verse 9, it talks about those who have been cleansed from their former sins. Verse 10, those who have confirmed their calling and election. Verse 12, those who are established in the truth. These are the kinds of godly people that are going to be rescued. You know what, this morning, the most important question you need to answer is this. Have you, by faith, asked God to forgive your sins? In faith, have you asked God to forgive you for your pride, for your self-centeredness, for all the things that you've done, promoting and pursuing your own self-interests? Have you asked him to forgive you because of how Jesus has taken the wrath you deserve? And have you surrendered the rest of your life to loving Jesus and seeking to be close to him by obeying all that he's commanded? That's the most important question to answer today. If you have not personally had this kind of relationship with Jesus, if you have not responded to him in faith, please Please don't leave here today without coming to talk to me or coming to talk to somebody around you and asking them, how can you start a relationship with Jesus? How can you respond in faith to him? The truth is, if you don't do that, there's no way for you to find the full purpose that God has for your life. And, and it's only by this relationship with Christ that you can hope to escape from the wrath that you deserve, the wrath that's coming. So please don't neglect so great a salvation. Now, maybe you're saying, I, I think I have that kind of relationship with Jesus, but how can I be sure? Well, it takes us to our second question. How can we recognize them? How can we recognize the godly that God will rescue? Second Peter, again, chapter one, verses five through eight, gives us this list of people, and you you will remember it if you've been here for this series, but it talks about this. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
So do you see these characteristics in your life? If you think you have a relationship with Christ, do you see faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection and love? Do you see them in your life? And do you see them increasing? Now, I'm not saying you have to be perfect. I know a lot of you, you're not perfect. And neither am I, right? And that's the good news. It's not a matter of having arrived, but do we see the trajectory of our lives? Are we moving more towards Christ-likeness? Are, are these traits growing in us? That's one way to know whether or not you have this kind of relationship with Jesus. Peter gives us two examples from history here as well. You remember in verse 5, he talks about how God preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness. He talks about Noah, a herald of righteousness. And Genesis 6, 9 describes Noah like this. He says, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, and Noah walked with God. Now, all of Noah's life was a, a, a declaration of who God is and what God was about to do. He was a herald of righteousness. So can you say, looking at your own life, are you a herald of righteousness? The other example we see here is Lot in verse 7. It says he rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Now, I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with the story of Lot from Genesis 19. But if we were to take time this morning and read that story, I'm guessing, I, if I asked, how would you describe Lot? Righteous would not be the first thing that would come to mind. Okay, we see Lot, he, he is hospitable. We see the two angelic men come and he, he takes them from the square and he wants to protect them. He offers them hospitality in his home. And when the men come to, to abuse him, he, he wants to defend them. But his, his plan is to offer his daughters instead. I mean, really? Right? And then in addition to that, when the time comes, the angels basically have to drag Lot and his family out of Sodom and Gomorrah. Their hearts are so attached there. But again, just showing that it is God who, do, who does rescue the godly. We see that even here. But, but thinking about that, and then thinking about Second Peter, it talks about him being righteous. He's a righteous man, his righteous soul. There's a lot of righteous there. How do we reconcile those two things? The truth is, I think in Lot, we see something that's far too common in Christianity today. We see someone who, who made some poor decisions, and as he lives among the, the results of those decisions, among those wicked people, that little by little, his heart becomes callous. His heart becomes numb, and, and pretty soon it's only the greatest atrocities, the, the most heinous evil that is causing him to be concerned. And, and at that point, his thinking is so unclear, he's not sure how to even stand against it. But isn't that like us? Let me ask you this, because after all, I've been thinking about it for a couple weeks, and misery loves company. So, how many things in your life have you made concessions on? How, how many things do you watch or do you participate in now that, that sometime in the past 
you would have been offended by you. You would have felt uncomfortable with you. Maybe it would have been so bad it would have even made you physically sick. But, but little by little, you, you've just allowed yourself to become comfortable with it. And, and, and without even knowing it, little by little, you become numb. And you become more like the world, more comfortable with the world. The truth is, I, I would guess probably most entertainment could fall in that category. Television and movies and music and all, all of those things, right? But, but even though we might belong to Jesus, and, and, and maybe we are righteous because of what Jesus has done, have we, have we made peace with the world? Have we accepted the world and the world's thinking? Have we brought ourselves to the point where we're just content to be where they are? Maybe we, like Lot, need to be dragged to our own safety. You know, thinking about this, I wonder if, if Peter was here today, and if Peter was looking at the state of the church, would, would he come to the conclusion that the false teachers he's warning us about here had somehow won? The next question is, how do we know their rescue is certain? If the godly are going to be rescued, how do we know their rescue is certain? And, and the answer is that, that Peter tells us again, Noah and Lot, historically here, he, he tells us uh, in verse 9 that, that God knows how to rescue the godly from trials. We can look at many other passages in Scripture where God rescues his people, where he comes, he intervenes, he delivers them in one way or another. We, we see it time and time again. But even in looking at it in Scripture, it really leads us to ask the, the, the final question, what's the nature of their rescue? What's the nature of their rescue? I, I think we all would agree we would like to be rescued at the beginning of our trials. That's right. Let me hear a bigger amen than that, right? Yeah. We, we'd like to somehow just kind of avoid the trial altogether. But the truth is, if we look at the examples in Noah's life or in Lot's life, right? Noah labored for 120 years amidst such wicked and evil people having to persevere in that time. And, and Lot, having made, made some poor decisions, had to struggle with the consequences of those choices in his life and his family and, and, and pressing through that trial. And if we look at others in Scripture, we see the same thing, that time and time again, so often, God allows the trials to endure. Yet at the time he chooses, at the time that's best, he intervenes and he rescues his own. You see, God may allow you to face long years of waiting before he intervenes, but, but he well knows how to rescue the godly from trials. He can be relied on. Our hope can be set on him. However, the, the challenge for us is being faithful in the waiting. Think of James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Again, I'm sure familiar to many of you. It says, Count it all joy, my brothers when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Or if we look back to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, you'll remember this. It says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Those of you who are here this morning that have responded in faith to what God has said, that have entered into an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ, please hear the promise this morning that as you look at the evil around you, or even the evil within you, as you look at the state of our country, or even the condition of the church, as you look at culture and see it growing more and more intolerant to truth, more and more complacent and apathetic to God, more and more enslaved in wickedness, as it seems like the struggles or the trials or the challenges of this life are growing and and at times maybe even are overwhelming, as you struggle even in your own soul to walk in intimate obedience with Christ, you might wonder, how, how do we survive this? How do we get through this? How does our family make it through this? How can our church make it through this? But let me tell you, brothers and sisters in Christ, you can rest assured God knows how to rescue the godly from trials. He holds you firmly in his hand. Nothing can snatch you out. Nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus. Nothing can separate you, no matter what's come into your life. Take a moment and drink that in. Savor that truth that he is holding you. And at the best possible time, he will deliver you. Your rescue is coming. It's certain. In closing, let me share with you this passage from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. It calls us to humble ourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, So at the proper time, he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So resist him. Stand firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered for a little while, The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a great and a glorious God. We thank you that we can rest assured that you hold all things in your hands. And this morning, Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who hasn't given their lives to you, hasn't experienced the delight of walking in a close relationship with Jesus Christ, Father, I pray this morning would be the morning. Father, I pray that you would speak to them even now, that you would give them eyes to see the impending destruction that is nigh upon them that, Father, you would give them eyes to see the hope and the, the opportunity that you present to them, that they may be set free, that they would know the love and the glory of Jesus Christ. 
Father, I pray this morning for those of us that are walking with you, Lord. Father, we confess so often we are weary and we are tired. There's so many things in this world that sometimes can seem so overwhelming. We struggle with our own sinful hearts and we struggle with the sinful world around us. But Father, we pray that you would continue to hold us fast and we would find comfort in knowing that you are near and at the appropriate time that you will deliver us from all these things. Father, give us hope that we might stand firm in our faith, that we would be a light in the darkness, that we would go out to make Christ known, that he would be glorified, that he would receive the worship due his name. Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to gather this morning. We pray that you are pleased. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.